0: And so when we can give somebody a tablet or a computer and either help them sign up for low-cost access or provide them with a Wi-Fi hotspot, whatever it is, when we can do that, we can really have an impact.
1: Welcome to Episode 417 of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. This is Rye Markitilio-McCracken here with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today, Christopher talks with Deb Sosha and Jeff Milliner. Deb is the president and CEO of the Enterprise Center in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Jeff is the senior program and operations officer there. Christopher talks with Deb and Jeff about their work to help Chattanooga achieve digital inclusion by working with churches and other organizations to ensure people can continue their faith traditions. They discuss improving connections between people and the telehealth and telemental health services they need. A quick note. Due to some recording difficulties in this episode, the audio quality is not up to our normal standards. We apologize and hope you enjoy. Now here's Christopher talking with Deb Sosha and Jeff Milliner.
2: Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcasts. I'm Christopher Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota, where we are all working from home still. Uh, Today, I'm returning with one of my favorite guests, my favorite people of all times, Deb Sosha, who is now the president and CEO of the Enterprise Center in in Enterprise. And it could be called Enterprise in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Chris. Good to see
2: you. It's great to see you. Uh, And also we have Jeff Milliner, who is an all right guy in his own right, (laughs) the senior program and operations officer at the Enterprise Center. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks for having me, Chris. I was sure you were talking about me at the beginning, but I'll I'll concede that to Deb. (laughs) Every time I see you, you go up in my estimation. Um, For people who aren't aware, Jeff was part of one of the best panels of all time um, with Deb and I, who have performed many times over the years together, (laughs) but never as much fun as when Jeff was on stage with us. And uh, uh, was that in Charlotte? Was that, um, it was the NDIA Net Inclusion.
3: That was in Charlotte. Yeah, that was a good time. That That was an incredibly smart, Panel with me
2: also there. <laughs> so let me start by asking. I, I believe we we have had um, we had Ken um, on from the Enterprise Center um, a while ago. But um, what is the Enterprise Center in Chattanooga? What's its role, Deb?
0: So we have really three distinct areas of work. One of them is convening and helping to manage the Chattanooga Smart Community Collaborative with the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga, with CoLab, with the city, with the county. It's a broad array of folks who are all working on ensuring that smart cities infrastructure is responsive to the needs of the citizens. So it's a really awesome project. The second one is we work in the innovation district. And in the innovation district, a lot of our effort surrounds uh, figuring out how to elevate opportunities, make connections, network, and really... Uh, smooth the pathway for entrepreneurs in the innovation economy. And the third area is digital equity work, uh, and we run the Tech Goes Home program and a variety of other projects that really help to connect people to technology, to training, and to online home access. Let me
2: ask Jeff. So, a lot of the things that Deb just described are, are pretty general. But tell me just specifically some of the things that, that you're involved in, in um, you know, in more specific details. That like, what what's the impact of some of the stuff you're doing?
3: You know, those those three buckets seem like they're separate, but for us, it is such a unified strategy that these things overlap. When we're talking about smart cities, we're talking about digital equity. When we're talking about investing in New technologies. We're also talking about, you know, what entrepreneurs, what startups can participate um, in that ecosystem as well. So it's a, a unified kind of, kind of different distributed approach to economic development, and that does look like a lot of different things. From public Wi-Fi, at the moment, we're we're working on standing up a, a really robust public Wi-Fi network, um, gig backed over our downtown core and out into the county uh, in response to COVID-19, making sure that. There is some form of access readily accessible to, to folks who live here. Um, Deb mentioned Tech Goes Home. You know, it's a, there's a general framework for Tech Goes Home, 15 hours, low cost device um, that we've subsidized, and access to home internet. But the way that program evolved here in Chattanooga you know, to meet the needs of a, a specific small business class, or um, families who have a, a child who's nonverbal, um, so they're learning accessible communication technologies, um, so that they can have more agency and control in their child's education. Um, in our innovation district, it's things like literally creating a stage for entrepreneurs who might otherwise be ignored to tell their stories, um, to build a community, to to have access to the capital and and networks that others may just come to expect a, a, as part of part of a startup community. Um, so there are a lot of different projects that interweave and, and overlap in interesting ways.
2: That's that's helpful. That's really helpful, actually, and <laughs> a bit overwhelming, frankly. There's so many things happening. I mean, I wonder if some people thought, Deb, that maybe you were going to be slowing down a little bit, and uh, it sure doesn't look like that. <laughs> You've got a lot of things going on. Does anyone who knows Deb actually think that <laughs> was her plan? That's I can't, <laughs> I can't imagine that.
0: I will say I hadn't anticipated the Zoom experience quite so much as... <laughs> what it ended up being. I mean, I've had days with 12, 13, 14 Zoom <laughs> calls that could definitely yeah, be a little bit trying.
2: So let me ask you Deb, you've done so many different things, um, You know, worked in so many different capacities. Uh, what is? What do you find really rewarding about the Enterprise Center?
0: For me, the whole idea that we can make a difference in somebody's life, that we can push toward more equitable opportunities. More importantly, Uh, more equitable outcomes, right? So it's not enough to have the same opportunity if you can't engage with that opportunity and end up with the outcome that others might have. So really, this is an opportunity for us to step in where folks are missing the chance to participate in the innovation economy and provide them with a doorway and a hand, right? So I, I really love that part of this work, um, and we really are looking forward to moving on and making some changes in the innovation economy here that could have a significant impact.
2: I'm jealous because as, as you know, from years of doing the sort of the national work and, and the work that that, that we do, we might help out tens or hundreds of communities in ways that we can't always tell what we're doing. And generally, we just have to assume because we don't always see the results of what we do. But I'm, I'm jealous you can actually see that and learn from that and iterate.
0: It's actually been one of the most important things for me as I get toward the other end of my career, right? I'm uh, older. And so the idea that I could work locally and see the impact was really an important next step for me. So let's go
2: backwards a little bit to um, not all of the things that you've been doing that's interesting, but what's different about uh, COVID-19? Since the pandemic began, how has that changed your focus?
0: It's been really interesting because one of the problems has been that there are groups of folks that haven't been able to shift to online, right? That includes, for example, some of the restaurants. So we got some volunteers together, we got some restaurant owners who didn't have the tech capacity, and we helped them share what's different for them now. Can you order online? Do you have to make a phone call? How does this all work? Um, And that's been really important to help these small restaurants maintain. Uh, The other group that we found really in significant trouble were the faith-based leaders. Um, They really didn't have the capacity to move online, especially the really smaller Black and Latino churches. Um, And so folks were missing a trusted voice in the conversation about how to stay safe. They were missing the message that they received every week. And these uh, small churches are really small businesses, and they weren't able to collect their tithes or donations either. So we lost this really important trusted asset. So we worked with, I think we've given out 20 or so uh, Wi-Fi hotspots and tablets to folks so that they could do an online sermon or online Bible study. And in some cases, um, would just be able to communicate in a way that allowed people to see each other. It, it's really been meaningful. Us to be able to do that work.
2: You haven't um, upset any any key allies in Chattanooga um, in terms of taking the one of the most impressive wired networks in the nation and then giving people hotspots to a wireless network.
0: <laughs> yeah, it really is challenging. Um, but as you know, EPB can't cover this whole area um, because of the state law, and so and in some cases, even the lowest cost. Uh, option from EPB because they can't go lower than that cost is too high for some of these small groups, right? And so uh, EPB has been an amazing partner in this work, and they've done a lot of work to stand up those Wi-Fi hotspots, and we've been lucky to work with them. They've just been awesome, but they can't solve it all because of the limitations, right, that are put in place by, by folks in the state. House. So we're, we're just really pleased to be able to partner with them to find solutions. And when we can't find a solution that they can provide to find alternatives,
2: I have to assume, given how impressive EPB has been at um, perfecting technologies that have been developed elsewhere and really trying to make them available to everyone, if there is a way to share a sandwich locally made over a fiber optic line, no matter where in the world it's developed, I'll bet EPB will have it within a few days. <laughs>
0: They're very engaged across the board. They're really planning microgrids and figuring out how to solve problems. You know, we're in an area that gets tornadoes, right? So in the middle of this pandemic, we had a tornado blow through town, and EPB got everybody back online, really amazingly rapid response. Both electricity and uh, Internet was returned back to just about normal in a very short period of time. I just find them impressive. Right.
2: Jeff, I I think we missed a quip from you. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, It was going to be a bad gig joke and
3: uh, about a thousand sandwiches, and we're going to move on from it, Chris. I will say I'll add to uh, something Deb said earlier in, in just thinking about local work. And this is not to say this doesn't happen at the national level, but Particularly in the face of a pandemic, uh, in, in the face of the tornadoes, the level at which just partners locally from across sectors came together to solve these challenges, particularly EPB, but looking at churches, looking at nonprofits, looking at hospitals, looking at, uh, you know, there wasn't a sector that wasn't engaged. And and right at the beginning, our United Way just stood up a call to listen. 150 organizations on that first from around Um, around the city uh, and county and region those calls have been going on for 16 17 weeks now with the same level of participation same level of coordination living in a, a networked town both physically and and sort of socially like Chattanooga still seeing the level at which folks are able to work together around this lightens the load on on everything that's on Deb's plate certainly Jeff remember did you grow up in Chattanooga area I grew up here. Okay, um, I'm not not originally from here, but this is this is definitely home.
2: Okay, because I was I was curious. I mean, I I do feel like the Enterprise Center is something that it seems quite special to Chattanooga. It seems something that a lot of places would benefit from in terms of an organization that seems to be focused on connecting people and making the best use of assets in kind of a soft way. I mean, frankly, it seems like the kind of thing that can go a lot of different directions and could be dangerous in the wrong leadership of not doing enough. And We're, we're going to talk a lot about um, telehealth and and, and and things related to that that you're working on. Um, but I, I just wanted to take another second to just sort of um, note that the Enterprise Center really is something special and it's something that should be iterated on by other communities that, um, that I think put too much there's too much of the fiber optics that people put the success on in Chattanooga. And and I, I regularly try to explain to people it's not about the technology. You know, um, EPB um, is doing an amazing job. And frankly, if EPB had decided to do wireless, it would be one of the best wireless networks, you know, like, and uh, it's just a matter of culture. It's a matter of, um, of working together and sort of listening to the community. There's, it seems like there's a lot of different factors involved that I just want people to appreciate.
0: I'll give you an example, right? So we uh, have a mile that is fully sensorized, right? Created by the Chattanooga Smart Community Collaborative. EPB wired it and got us electricity. UTC uh, created the plans and helped to implement them. The Enterprise Center uh, ran back and forth between the city, the county, and and EPB and UTC. Um, And it's been an amazing collaboration. And it's interesting because when we talk about this nationally, one of the things I always hear is they can't make those connections. By themselves. Those big groups have a hard time being the glue. We get to be the glue, and it's really amazingly rewarding. Jeff,
2: you're nodding your head like maybe if I just poke you, you'd have something to fill in. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I keep that this is audio, and I can also.
3: So I was nodding very sagely. I think that it's a missing adverb there. Deb hit it absolutely on the head. I I think that's exactly it. And how I've always kind of seen our work is that. Sometimes these projects don't go forward, not because of a lack of good intention, um, but the fact that there's something that is too difficult for one of those partners to, to manage on their own, or there's something, there's something extra that's required and having this sort of middle space, interstitial space, where partners like the Enterprise Center can work, make those connections, figure out what isn't working, and certainly for that pilot version, solve it for the immediate, And then work on the structure to make sure that it doesn't just happen one time, but becomes... How we get things done.
2: So the reason that I finally am getting around to to putting you two on the microphone in this show is because Deb and I were talking recently, and I was making the case that I feel like we need more research into benefits around telehealth um, and all of the the wide range of things that could include. Because I feel like um, increasing adoption and access, um, you know, um, two different challenges we have with the digital divide, um, a lot of the cost in that um, could appropriately be spent um, with an expectation that we would then save money on Medicare, Medicaid, and other um, health insurance alone, but, uh, but also a variety of other benefits from the community. And Deb was sort of like, hey, knucklehead, we're doing a lot of that already. <laughs> so um, <laughs> so let's talk about that. Deb, um, you know, how, do we, how do we introduce folks to what uh, you've been doing in the realms of telehealth?
0: I'll tell you i'm gonna I'm gonna let uh, Jeff give you some info about that, but I'll tell you, you know, in the same way that we worried about folks who couldn't engage in faith-based services or restaurants that couldn't stay open, we were worried about folks who, for health reasons, really couldn't be out in the community but required support, whether that's palliative care or hospice or telemental health and I, you know i love them for all that they can do and when i think about telemental health one of the things it removes is the stigma right i'm not walking into a space that says psychiatry i am home on my couch it, i will be less anxious less uncomfortable more obviously about What's going on for me as opposed to having to deal with all those other ancillary issues? So I, I just love this as an option. And as somebody getting older, I love the idea that I could age in place and participate in my mental health, my mental health care, and my physical health care. Through
2: a computer. One of the things that, that I would note is I know someone who has um, used an option from a healthcare program to uh, speak with uh, someone, a therapist, uh, over the telephone. And so um, it is a wonderful option. It it can provide uh, tremendous help without being uh, stigmatizing. And I can only imagine that a video link um, could help a lot more um, uh, for people that would want to have that extra dimension.
0: Body language matters. You know, I think the big trick with all of this is making sure that the providers can get paid. Right. That's where the struggle has been in the past um, is it an equitable pay if I am providing you with 45 minutes of telemental health to you sitting in my office for mental health care? I think that has been part of the challenge.
2: So, Jeff, if we if we go back out to the the higher version and generally, how how do you get involved in general with um, the telehealth programs and things like that? How does it all fit within what you do?
3: Yeah, I I think part of it is there's a there's a really interesting parallel between. Digital equity work and and health work. I mean, we are we're talking about quality of life. We're talking about health, happiness, success. These are systems level things. Um, I think about a, a cousin when he was studying medicine, talking about what really interested him about. While we're on tele- uh, mental health, psychiatry in particular, is that there's sort of you can't set uh, set it like you would set an arm. You have to treat the whole person. There are so many different aspects that come into it, and, and thinking about Health and health systems in general, in that same way, that there are so many different aspects um, that touch people's lives and have their own kind of specific requirements. And that lines up in a really interesting way with access, sort of people's ability to navigate those systems, that the agency from the digital literacy and, and digital inclusion side of things can translate to agency within those health systems. I think it's also what telehealth is able to do example of one partner that we're working with um hospice of chattanooga um they're part of the uh, aleo health system um cover three states highly rural healthcare. um in addition to um, you know downtown chattanooga we've lost in the last decade i think um, particularly in middle and east tennessee 14 rural hospitals deb mentioned in a moment like this how difficult it is you know for for someone who who might be health compromised to actually go visit a hospital, that there's risk in, in involved in this. Um, again, our, our parallel to digital equity inclusion, broadband access work, if you don't have access to that hospital anyway, you know, there is no option um, for you, not even one with risk. There just isn't something. Um, and And finding how we can leverage these networks, remote access to make up for what just isn't there anymore is hugely, hugely important. Um, some of the work that, that hospice is doing is around palliative care, um, in particular, which is about aging in place, about quality of life, and about dignity of life, even even towards the ends of it. Um, and that some of their work is around pain management, around plans of care, around avoiding the emergency room, and and being at home. You know, anecdotally from the doctors and and caregivers who are engaged in that palliative work, their patients aren't having to drive forty-five minutes to see them, and they're not having to do that either. Um, they're able to manage a, a different size course load and keep their patients from having
2: to seek emergency services.
3: Super important in a you know global pandemic,
2: but important period. One of the things that I, I tend to think about is, you know, you mentioned the 45-minute trip, which in and of itself can be a barrier. But then you layer onto that. Perhaps you're responsible for providing care for someone. Yeah. Um, maybe maybe you have to deal with daycare. I mean, the people that have the least ability to get across town to get to a medical appointment um, it seems to be the ones that we most want to make sure are able to do that <laughs> because that's often where the public may be paying more of the medical bills. Um, you know, the people who have had less advantages, uh, people who have uh, been discriminated against. Um, and so uh, it, it seems essential. And And this is where, you know, I, I tend to think in terms of like, okay, where can we put a dollar sign on it? Because there's people who I think would be much more interested in, in solving the broadband problem if they thought we'd be able to then spend less on healthcare. And and I think I've said this many times on these podcasts, but, you know, as someone who's not a specialist in healthcare, it blew me away when I started to understand how much diabetes and um, and mental or uh, cognitive decline in aging are, are two things that dramatically drive the costs up of medical care. And if we can intervene effectively much earlier in the process with those in particular, but also with others, if we can have more successful medical interventions, we just save so much money and saving a lot of money in medical care is like huge. I mean, like it's, it turns out there's (laughs) quite a bit. Um, I say this
3: also not as a medical (laughs) professional (laughs) and in in any way, another example um, that kind of ties in a bit more of the enterprise centers work is asthma, is a, is another great um, space where, um, you know, A, we're doing some sensor work to better understand the reality um, of, of the environment. But those asthma visits um, to the emergency room, days out of school, days missed um, for work, same, same story. Um, and especially when you're talking about its impact on, on education as well, there are uh, immediate impact, but generational impact because of asthma and like some of these other systems, you know, we see it rear itself in the most inequitable ways in the communities that can afford it least um, and, and that suffer for it most.
0: So what we've been doing, Chris, is working with the healthcare organizations to make sure that they and their patients have the technology and access they need to be able to engage in this, right? Because these are the least connected folks as well as those most at risk in terms of healthcare, And so when we can give somebody a tablet or a computer and either help them sign up for low-cost access or provide them with a Wi-Fi hotspot, whatever it is, when we can do that, we can really have an impact. We can, in a pandemic, reduce the visits for people who have uh, a uh, compromised immune system right? Instead of having to go in for that asthma visit, I can have that asthma visit from home. So figuring out who needs that resource and how do we get to them, pretty much we worked with the medical providers as opposed to trying to figure out who needed it. They know who needs the help. And so we've worked primarily with the medical providers.
2: Is there a was there a concern or there's anything special you had to do to make sure that you weren't you know, um, I can imagine that if you went up to a, if I went up to a doctor in St. Paul and said, "Hey, I'd like to find out all your patients who need a computer, and I'd like to give them one," I might say, well, "Wait a minute, here, <laughs> I'm not going to give you my list of patients."
0: I actually would never ask that question. Anyway. I wouldn't think we that We basically would. gave them. <laughs> we basically gave the devices to them, mm-hmm. and they distributed as they needed. Uh-huh. Right? We we definitely didn't want to be the middleman in that work, unless. There's somebody they want us to help do training. We are happy to do that. But in the end, our goal was not to be engaged in that way, but rather to facilitate it, right? Mm -hmm. How do we facilitate this? This is not work that medical providers are really trained to do, but it's what we're trained to do. And so our capacity to help them uh, help their patients really is what made it all work. And
3: I think at that level too, the trend towards telemedicine, you know, services at distance was not, it did not show up during COVID. And we found in reaching out to a handful of partners who we thought this could be helpful for getting that feedback that this is where we knew we had to head. The timeline has changed. what else can we do? What should we be doing? Um, What would you recommend in this, specifically the connectivity space? And I think those are the kinds of interesting partnerships I alluded to earlier where, we rely on their expertise, um, and and they rely on ours, and and that's where the outcomes come
0: from. We did something similar in the recovery community as well.
2: Chris. Actually, that's what I was just gonna just gonna push this to exactly. I mean, assume that that's uh, an area that's particularly um, challenged is people who have been used to going to group meetings,
0: right? And and you know they are really important for folks in recovery, and so. Um, How do you provide that? Well, somebody needs a Zoom license. Some folks need a device, but it has to be anonymous. And so we facilitated conversations and and the process of getting Zoom licenses and helping people share that they're online now. It is tricky because it's another community in which we don't want the list. We couldn't get the list. But what we want to do is help be the facilitator that can connect all the pieces if that makes sense. And, and we wrote some grants with a couple of folks on, on both of those. And the United Way is working with us on the recovery piece. And a local group of pastors called Kingdom Partners is helping us on the faith-based side.
2: Are there, are there any lessons that you learned that you could share with uh, people that might be inspired to try and do this in their
0: community? My number one would be one that I think wouldn't surprise anybody who's worked in digital equity. And that is, you got to figure out who's the trusted partner. We are not the trusted partner. And we are sometimes, I will admit, but but not in general, right? So how do we find those folks who people trust and will go to them for support and we support them as they support others, right? So we aren't always doing it directly. We are often using sort of a proxy, right? So, and it works really well because It's not a circumstance where folks say, yeah, I trust government. Yeah, I trust an organization I've never worked with. But they do trust their local community assets, whether that is a library or a school or a faith-based organization or a Boys and Girls Club or the Y, right? So how do we leverage that to provide the resources and opportunities that are really desperately needed in the community?
3: I think that's exactly right. I'm trying to think about what my answer to that question would be. I think there's something about this particular moment in time that, you know, for the last six years, digital equity inclusion has been one of the chief focuses of our organization. And we've worked with more than 90 different partners around the city to do this work. It's never been and never had to be the primary work of all of those other organizations. And and we've really found ourselves kind of working that back end organizational level as the pandemic struck, um, as life moved online, suddenly connecting became the primary goal of so many of these partners. Whether they were churches, whether they were hospitals, you know, whether they were nonprofits or schools, that became. And having an entity like ours that could not, as Deb says, step in and you know do all that work, but really help educate, provide resources do that back-end connecting to allow all of these other kind of systemic partners to be able to do their work. Um, And I don't know that that's a a lesson exactly, but the fact that we had a little bit of that lead time, that we'd been doing this work for a bit, made all of those connections and kind of the platform to do some of these new things, to end up in spaces I don't think we anticipated, like addiction recovery. Um, But we recognize as just incredibly vital um, to the health of our our community.
2: One of the solutions, because, I mean, we know that um, the state law prohibits um, EPB from going out there and using um, its power to to connect low-income folks and offer them a, a deal that they can afford. Um, the state um, imposed that limit in part because of a concern that uh, companies, uh, net- networks like EPBs would uh, try to predatorily price Comcast out of the market, which is is crazy to, to worry about nonetheless that's a barrier you have but i'm curious i mean you you have this challenge in which um you're using all these different technologies and it seems like you're not able to use the one that's most the most powerful one that's there, the sort of the greatest asset that could be there. And, I, and I'm just curious, I mean, is, um, you know, how does the, we haven't talked very much about the Wi-Fi hotspots you've been putting up. Um, you know, we talked more about, I think, the the like mobile wireless um, hotspots you've handed out, which don't use the the fiber network. But how how has having EPB there in your corner um, helped with different solutions as you're, you're challenging these problems when they can't directly intervene.
0: They, they actually have been imperative, right? So they're putting up Wi-Fi hotspots, but they're using their networks. So these are robust <laughs> Wi-Fi hotspots, right?
2: They don't slow down if five people are using them simultaneously.
0: Exactly. It's pretty awesome. And, you know, we are seeing a lot of use. And so we know they are necessary.
3: I'll say on the, the hotspots as well, to tie it back to health. You know, one of the places where, and we've been working very closely with EPB over the last and, and a and a couple of philanthropic partners as well as the city is to stand up a, a, as Deb said, a really robust network, particularly in our urban core, really thinking about sort of a, a three minute walkshed tops um, for tens of thousands um, of residents um, to be able to access this level of, of public Wi-Fi, but also using that as a as a tool to communicate. Health information, As Deb said, we're getting now tens of thousands of sessions on this public Wi-Fi network that's been stood up kind of at the neighborhood level um, and not just in, in parking lots at our housing authority locations and, and other subsidized housing locations um, and, and using that network to communicate information about COVID-19, about testing sites, um, about digital health, about other resources like 211 that um, families can access in, in times of, of trouble and, and challenge. These are the neighborhoods where when you look at our, our map, these are the hotspots. These are where families, particularly our, our Latinx community, um, 6% of our population, 60% of our cases right now, you know, have been disconnected and, and leveraging every tool we've got uh, to help slow down that spread, to provide folks with the information resources they need to be safe is is, is really, really important. I think that's also, you know, we've got, EPB is an incredible partner. Um, they're not everywhere and, and they're not everywhere else either. There is no one solution to any of this. And I think that has been key, especially in in a moment like this, where it is, it's all hands on deck. It's been everyone working together, um, whether it's a, a large national carrier or our, our local champions um, to, to meet people where they are and, and provide a slew of options Um, to get us to uh, a space where we can think about what's next.
0: It's interesting because one of the things that we did with University of Tennessee Chattanooga is work with their GIS folks. So we've got, I can go to that interactive map, put in my location, and it will show me where I can go to get free Wi-Fi. And it's within a very short distance of almost everybody to be able to find that. You know that's a really good positive step it's not everything it's not perfect but it is a good part of that puzzle that mix of solutions that we need in order to ensure that no one is without connectivity
3: and especially you know um you don't have to have an address to be able to access this network there are all kinds of reasons that having this as at the very least the fail safe there is always an option um available to you regardless of circumstance like we said, we know it's not the only option. It's not the only thing we need to do, um, but it's there, um, and it is for everyone. I don't know. That's been our approach to to all of the above in Chattanooga.
2: I think it sets a high bar, and I and I hope it's inspiring others to think about what they can do locally to try to uh, iterate on on these ideas. Um, and uh, um, if nothing else push you all to to keep moving toward your next great announcement. <laughs> so i um i'm looking forward to um frankly traveling down to chattanooga again i'd been um it's been too long and i thought i would see deb this fall but now um i guess i won't be coming down for an event uh but um as soon as possible i very much want to come back and and see with for my own eyes all the great things that are happening there
0: we'd love to have
2: you. thank you so much deb
0: Thank you. It's great to see you. It's great to talk with you.
2: And Jeff, uh, wonderful again. Um, I look forward to a future net inclusion where we are all together and not wearing masks and uh, performing a comic routine rather than talking about broadband. (laughs) It's hard to uh,
3: convey the level of sarcasm I see in your eyes. No, Chris, it's always a pleasure. (laughs) I I really enjoy, I always learn something. I always learn something from Deb um, and I always learn something from you. So, So thanks for letting me join you too. I'm um, talking on this as well.
1: That was Christopher talking with Deb Sosha and Jeff Milliner. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at Muninetworks.org slash broadband bits. Email us at podcast at Muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter, his handle is at community CommunityNets. Follow Muninetworks.org stories on Twitter, the handle is at Muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR. Building local power local energy rules and the composting for community podcast you can access them anywhere you get your podcasts you can catch the latest important research from all our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org while you're there please take a moment to donate your support in any amount keeps us going thank you to arnie Hughesby for the song warm duck shuffle licensed through creative commons this was episode 417 of the community broadband bits podcast thanks for listening